morning. It's, uh, it's been a while since I've um, had the privilege of preaching uh, amongst my brothers and sisters at Emmaus. Um, I just want to say how grateful I am for this opportunity, as I always am, um, to, uh, to share with you what I've, I th- what, I, what I've learned and what I hope and pray the Lord has spoken to me over the last number of days. Um, I, uh, it, being part of this body for, uh, being part of this body for over a decade or so, um, I've learned so much about what it means to, um, what it means to walk in the light of Jesus, as I'm going to talk about today, uh, from all of you here, those of you who were part of St. Stephen's uh, before Emmaus was formed, before I was ever around, those of you who joined Emmaus, St. Stephen's around my time as well, and those of you who have, have joined the body since. Uh, it is a, it, I have, I have um, the Lord has taught me a great deal, and there's a great deal more to be taught, I realize, of course, but I just wanted to say that as I was reflecting on this passage from Colossians, that um, the way in which the body of Jesus has been so um, essential to growing in submission and surrender to Jesus for me. Now, in his letter to the saints at Colossae, a once small city in what is now western Turkey, Paul writes that Jesus is both the ruler over all creation as well as the sacrifice offered for all creation. As I was thinking through what Paul writes here about Jesus' kingship and Jesus' cross, a trusted member of Emmaus helped me understand something that I had not yet clearly grasped. That any proclamation of the kingship of Jesus necessarily leads to a proclamation of the cross of Jesus. As he put it to me, borrowing from an old hymn, a very old hymn, Jesus never reigns in greater splendor or majesty than when he reigns enthroned naked upon the cross. Once I began to see this, things from Paul's letter that for were for me, up to that point, sort of scattered fragments began to coalesce. I began to see the dependency of Jesus' rule over me, over my family, over creation. I began to see this kingship as dependent upon Jesus humbling himself, and I saw my citizenship in his kingdom as one of imitation of my Lord's humility. And with this clarity came a renewed joy in seeing just how much we are loved by God. So my goal for this morning is to share with you some reflections that might also instill in you a joy of God's love, or at least 
increase it all the more. So I'm going to tell you how I see the relationship in Colossians of the kingship of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, and our citizenship in his kingdom. And to do this, I'm going to draw on three things from Colossians, that Jesus is the firstborn, that Jesus makes peace by his blood, and that the subjects of Jesus are the saints in light, firstborn, blood, and light. But first, let me pray for us in the way that Paul prayed for the saints in Colossae. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will in all wisdom and understanding so that we'd walk in a manner worthy of you, bearing fruit in every good work, that we'd be strengthened by your power, that we would endure with patience, joy, and thankful hearts. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you, that slide may have been up for a while. Looks good. <clears throat> You'll see where we're going here. First, uh, to understand what Paul says about Jesus as the firstborn, we're going to look at how the rule of Jesus is predicated on his self-offering. Then, to understand what Paul says about Jesus making peace by his blood, we're going to look at how the disposition of Jesus gives his blood the power to make us citizens in his kingdom. And finally, to understand what Paul says about sharing in the inheritance of the saints in light, we're looking at how living in the light means not hiding or holding back anything from our Lord, and how doing that, how that self-revealing is a way of imitating the self-offering that Jesus made on the cross. So first, what does Paul mean when in verses 15 and 18 he calls Jesus the firstborn, the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from the dead, or, the new, uh, or of the new creation? Well, there are numerous connotations of this term firstborn, as you may know in the Old Testament. I want to gather three of these uh, connotations, three of these meanings together that I think are bound up in Paul's use of the term in Colossians 1. So the first term I wanted to note of this, uh, the first occurrence of this term firstborn is the first one of the Bible, as far as I'm aware, in Genesis 4, where Abel offers to God the firstborn of his flock. Now we know, first of all, from the Genesis story, that Abel's offering was pleasing to God in a way that Cain's, his brother Cain's was not. But we also know from Hebrews 11 that Abel's offering was more acceptable than his brother Cain's because Abel offered it to God in faith. So the firstborn in Genesis 4 is the sacrifice that is made acceptable to God by the disposition of the one making it, of the giver. Another significant occurrence, I think, for us is Exodus 4, where God refers to the people of Israel collectively as his firstborn when he's giving instruction to Moses. He says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. I think you find a, a similar meaning to this. Uh, Israel as, as the beloved son of the father. In Jeremiah 31, in which the Lord, speaking through the prophet, declares his commitment to the promises he made to that beloved son, Israel. Explaining 
why he, uh, why he could be counted on to keep his promises, to save his people, the Lord, through the prophet, says, For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Ephraim here being a, a part that stands in for the whole or, or big chunk of Israel. So from these two sets of passages, we see the firstborn is both the acceptable offering to God and the Son of God who is bound to the Father in a covenant, in promise. And uh, the third point, uh, the third meaning I want to pull out here of firstborn is in Psalm 89. It's a celebration of God's promises through David, the king of Israel, but also a lament for the sorry state of God's people. So the psalmist has God declare about his king, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love, I will keep him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. Yet despite these promises, the psalm ends with a series of laments, and they're directed right at God. I'm just going to summarize them briefly, these laments. You, God, have rejected your king. You, God, have renounced your covenant. You've given your, his, your king's enemies, victory. You made his enemies rejoice. You thwarted your king in battle. You cut short his days. You, God, have covered your king with shame. Quote, how long will you hide yourself? Who can deliver us from death? Where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David. All of these laments, all of these questions find their answer in the kingship of Jesus. So Jesus is the firstborn, as Paul says, because the gradual unfolding of the significance of this firstborn has now come to fruition in Jesus. He is the self-offering made acceptable to God by the disposition of the giver, in perfect obedience to the Father, as we'll see in a minute. He is the cherished Son with whom God is bound in covenant, and he is the King through whom God will keep his promises. But the promises that God made to Israel through the kingship of David are now extended to all creation through the kingship of Jesus, the firstborn of all creation and of the new creation, firstborn from the dead as well. Now, what is it about the kingship of Jesus that brings about this redemption? As Paul says in verse 14, the forgiveness of sins. What is the peculiar power of this kingship that makes it possible for sinners to be called saints, holy ones? What Paul says in verse 20, we are reconciled to him who makes peace by the blood of his cross. But what is it about the blood of Jesus that gives it the power to usher in this kingdom? To redeem us from darkness and reconcile us to himself. So most of us can recall the Passover, or many of us I imagine can recall without too much trouble the Passover story. Israel is saved from slavery, though at the cost of the death of the firstborn sons of Egypt. But also recall, or I mean, I did not recall this. Uh, uh, I, was, I was surprised when I started reading Exodus 13 that opens, this is right after the Passover, quote, The Lord said to Moses, 
consecrate to me all the firstborn. I read those words and I think, have I forgotten something big about the story of Exodus? When you hear God say, consecrate to me the firstborn, <clears throat> sort of you, your attention is, uh, is, is, is heightened. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, both of man and of beast is mine, the Lord says. So once they're brought into the land that God was giving them, Israel was to sacrifice to God all of their firstborn males. This is the part, I, 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 you may think I'm silly, you may be with me, I don't know, but I'd forgotten the firstborn here includes the, 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 the firstborn of beast and of man, of the children of Israel, because this is how God redeemed Israel from slavery. But, the Lord continues to explain, the firstborn children of Israel would be redeemed, saved from this destruction by the sacrifice of a lamb in their place. So back to my original question, what is it about the blood of Jesus that gives his kingship the power to reconcile all creation, including all sinners, to himself? It is at least in part because the blood of Jesus is the blood of the Lamb. Uh, I don't know, some of you, has anyone ever read or heard of a little book by Roy Hessian called The Calvary Road? Okay, I don't, I, I want to, I would love to hear what your thoughts are on this book later today. It has been for me a very powerful little book uh, written by a, a British evangelist in 1950. I'm going to read a, a series of excerpts from a, 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 a small chapter from a small book called The Power of the Blood of the Lamb. It's a bit long, but I hope you'll, you'll stay with me here. Hessian writes, That which gives the precious blood of Jesus its power with God for us is the lamb-like disposition of the one who shed it. Jesus is the divine fulfillment of all the lambs offered under the Mosaic Covenant, but the title lamb has a deeper meaning. It describes the character of Jesus. He is the lamb in that he is gentle and lowly of heart, meek, unresisting, all the time surrendering his own will to the fathers. They did what they liked to him, and for our sakes, he yielded all the time. No standing up for his rights, no hitting back, no resentment, no complaining. How different from us. It was as the lamb that Isaiah saw him when he prophesied, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The scourging the scoffing, the spitting, the nailing and the lifting up, the piercing of his side and the flowing of his blood, none of these would have been had he not been the lamb. We see not merely is he the lamb because he died on the cross, but he died upon the cross because he is the lamb. Let us ever see this disposition in the blood. 
Let every mention of the blood call to mind the deep humility and self-surrender of the Lamb, for it is this disposition that gives the blood its wonderful power with God. When we live under Jesus' kingship, we live under the reign of the Lamb who offered himself for the whole world. The blood of Jesus has the power to transfer us to his kingdom because it's offered in perfect submission to the Father. So third and finally, what does this mean for us to live under this kingship of the Lamb, the firstborn? Or to put it differently, what does it mean as Paul prays for the Colossians in verse 10 to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? I'm going to read again verses 12 and 13. Give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. To be a saint, made holy, washed in the blood of Jesus, and living under the reign of our King. All this means to move from a life hidden in darkness to a life revealed by the light, to walk in the light. You may know the Charles Spurgeon quote, that to walk in the light means a willingness to know and to be known. I just want to uh, focus this last part of our time, to, my time here with you on that second part. A willingness to be known is what it means in part to walk in the light. God, of course, as we know, knows us better than we can ever know ourselves as our creator. But the question, I guess, is more, are we willing to reveal ourselves? Are we willing to stand naked before our God as Jesus hung naked upon the cross? I think this willingness is a big part of emulating Jesus' self-surrender, his obedience. If the power of the blood of Jesus is in his lamb-like submission to the Father, then to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord must be an imitation of that same submission. Being willing to be known by God is self-surrender because it is an acknowledgement of who is really in charge. When Paul says that all rule and authority was created by him through and for Jesus, it is saying, he, Paul, is saying that his kingship is total. It's absolute. Nothing escapes it or is outside the dominion of Jesus. So when we try to control our lives, decide how we should be perceived, prioritize the image others have of us, we're usurping, we're taking God's authority instead of letting him rule our lives. In one of uh, Ian's sermon, uh, Ian Henderson, one of our members, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount studies, he explained that when Jesus tells his listeners not to be like the hypocrites, the word he uses there just means actor. Don't pretend. Don't put on a show for others. 
you have an audience of one, that is God. We can fool ourselves, and we can definitely fool others, but we cannot fool God. So Jesus invites us to drop the mask. He invites me to drop the mask. And by the power of the Spirit that he gives us, and through being honest with our Lord in prayer, we are fully empowered to accept that invitation. The invitation to be honest with ourselves and honest with our Lord is an invitation offered in love because it's, it's for our peace and our joy. Any pleasure we might get from our self-ownership, and there is pleasure in it, at least I think there is some pleasure in it, is fleeting. The pleasure we get from pretending or acting for ourselves or for others, it's quickly snatched away, snatched away from us by that darkness from, from which it came. And in its place settles a kind of restlessness and unease. But the invitation to drop our masks and humble ourselves before our Lord is offered in love because to do so fills the soul with peace and joy. Now, we experience, as I, I think uh, all of you have, this peace and this joy when we're in a genuine fellowship with one another. Much of what the Lord has taught me, as I said at the beginning of my uh, uh, talk or sermon this morning, much of what he's taught me about walking honestly and humbly in his light, I have learned from what you saints at Emmaus have modeled for me. To confess to one another when there's been sin, to gently challenge one another to be honest with ourselves and always and only do so out of love. When we humble ourselves before King Jesus, revealing ourselves for who we truly are in all our brokenness, God honors that lamb-like disposition. He renews the joy and the peace that comes from knowing we have been cleansed by the blood of our King. When we surrender ourselves to him, all our ambitions and hopes and plans, he does not take away our suffering, as you know. Remember what Jesus said, well, there are many things he said about suffering, but among other things that when Jesus said to his disciples, you will be hated because of my name. But the wounds that we do suffer are transformed into a sharing in the wounds of Christ our King, who never reigns in greater splendor or majesty than when he reigns enthroned naked upon the cross. I'd like to pray for us something that we actually find in the ACNA Book of Common Prayer. It's called a covenant prayer. Some of you might know it by John Wesley or attributed to John Wesley. It, he writes in the first person. I'll read in the first person and if these words resonate with you, I invite them to make them your own. I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt, rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed by thee, or laid aside for thee, exalted for thee, or brought low for thee. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, 
let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine, and I am thine. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. <clears throat>